1967, the Minneapolis Institute of Art gets a semi-trailer, fills it with art, and begins driving it around the state of Minnesota. They call it the Artmobile, not to be confused with the Wienermobile, which promotes Oscar Mayer wieners and looks like a hot dog strapped to a submarine, like a James Bond submersible if James Bond sold hot dogs. No, the Artmobile in 1967 really is a semi. A blue international truck tractor and drop frame trailer driven by a couple of guys named Dwayne and Norm. It's nice. The floor is rubber tiled and soft music is piped in. And the museum didn't just throw some junk from storage in there. They're original paintings by Winslow Homer and John Singer Sargent. The Artmobile travels around for years, from small towns to the Red Lake Indian Reservation to the Stillwater State Prison. And by 1973, it's being run by this ambitious, kind of irreverent curator named Michael Oker. Oker decides he wants to show some Georgia O'Keeffe in the Artmobile. Now, O'Keeffe is famous, right? In 1973, the same year Picasso dies, she's probably the one living artist most Americans can name, other than Norman Rockwell. She's also, supposedly, a loner, a recluse, a hermit, the detached doyenne of the desert, as one curator puts it. It's the one thing that everyone who knows about her knows about her, or maybe the second thing. Well, Michael Oker starts writing to O'Keefe. He complains that all her original work seems to be tied up with universities seeking to give her honorary degrees. Yet, he insists that he needs it. There's no way in hell, he tells her, I would even attempt to use a copy. At one point, he threatens to follow O'Keefe around with the artmobile as she collects these degrees. And then, in the end, he asks for an audience at her home. I may be in the area, he says. Finally, he gets a response. Just three lines. It is too late to have that artmobile follow me about the universities, she writes. I've given up collecting degrees. And then, the great loner, the famous hermit, the detached doyen of the desert, adds, Come by, if you have time. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the myth of Georgia O'Keeffe and why we still desperately want to believe. I'm Tim Gearing. 
When I was growing up in Wisconsin in the 1970s and 80s, there were a few famous people we all knew were from Wisconsin. Frank Lloyd Wright. Yep, Prairie School. That made sense. Liberace. Sure, he's Polish. He plays the beer bale polka. You can see that. And then Georgia O'Keeffe, which never made sense. Everyone knew she painted the desert and lived there. She couldn't have come from Wisconsin, but she did. If you drive about three and a half miles into the cornfields outside of Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, near Madison, there's a little blue sign on the side of the road that simply says, Birthplace of Georgia O'Keeffe, Artist. Born November 15, 1887. It's here that O'Keeffe spends the first 16 years of her life. That she first takes art lessons. That she first declares she'll become an artist. And then she leaves. And so, in 1976, when the family farmhouse burns down, the town of Sun Prairie wants to name a park after her. And the town leaders ask if she'll come to the dedication and if she'll donate a painting. And she says no and no. Some people say, well, this just shows her Midwestern roots. Right. She's so modest. And someone else says, well, she's going blind and doesn't want everyone to know. But there's another possibility. There's a story about O'Keefe that says a lot about how she liked to curate her life. She would collect rocks she liked and would place them around the house. And sometimes people would move them around or add their own, thinking she likes rocks, right? Well, she does. But mostly, she likes what she likes. And soon enough, she puts the rocks right back where they were. Everyone is born somewhere, and for some it defines their life. And for others... It's just the place they started. For O'Keefe, perhaps, Wisconsin is like a rock that doesn't belong. Okay, let's jump ahead to 1915. O'Keefe is teaching art, off and on, in the Texas Panhandle. She's in her 20s, living with her teenage sister. And she's not shy. She's going out dancing. She's kissing a lot of guys. She's dressing in front of an open window when she knows she's being watched. And she loves it. Last night, I loved the starlight, she writes. The dark, the wind and the miles of the thin strip of dark that is land. It was wonderfully big. A 
Of course, she's drawing and painting, too. Some of her first abstractions of nature, these fluid forms that could be water, or wind, or the inside of flowers. She doesn't bother to name these drawings, for the most part. Just number two, number five, number twenty, and so on. She's just trying to get better. And then, on New Year's Day, 1916, a friend takes a bunch of O'Keeffe's charcoal drawings to Gallery 291 in Manhattan, run by Alfred Stieglitz. And Stieglitz, the impresario, is impressed. This is when he famously says, Finally, a woman on paper. Now, O'Keefe and Stieglitz start to write. This young free spirit and this older married man, right? Sometimes two or three times a day, back and forth from Texas and New York. My dearest, grandest child, he calls her. And O'Keefe calls herself his little girl of the Texas Plains. After two years, O'Keefe is sick with the flu, and Stieglitz is ready to leave his wife. So, in May 1918, he sends the photographer Paul Strand to Texas to see if O'Keefe would consider moving to New York. Coming may bring you darkness instead of light, Stieglitz warns her. But a few weeks later, she's in New York. He tells her, All I want is to preserve that wonderful something which so purely exists between us. And at first... It probably is wonderful. It's certainly something. O'Keefe is drawn into the circle of artists around Stieglitz, who's also a well-known photographer, right? The one who turned photography into an art form. And it's exciting being around all these people, all trying to create modernism in America, trying to create the great American picture. O'Keefe and Stieglitz spend the summers upstate with his big extended family. And in the winter, Stiglitz works the art scene. His life is people, and he's okay with that. And for a few years, so is O'Keefe. Even though she never knows how many she'll have to feed for dinner, even though she can't work with someone looking over her shoulder, and there's always someone... Stiglitz is showing her work and making her famous. And he believes in her, which is kind of irresistible, right? I like being first, she writes in the 1920s, if I'm noticed at all. That's why I get on with Stiglitz. With him, I feel first. But as it happens... She isn't. In 
O'Keefe finds out, less than five years into their marriage, that Stiglitz is cheating on her the same way he cheated with her, with a much younger artist. It's 1929. O'Keefe is 41. She's been living in a hotel with Stieglitz in Manhattan, painting the skyscrapers around her and the family place upstate at Lake George. And now she can't stand the thought of another summer with him and his family. So she gets on a train. And three and a half days later, she's in Santa Fe. New Mexico. She's come with her good friend, Rebecca Strand, who's the wife of Paul Strand, and who everyone calls Beck, and who adores O'Keefe, and who has even begun to adopt some of O'Keefe's mannerisms, like wearing her hair in a bun. If it was Paul Strand who took O'Keefe out of the Southwest, it's his wife who takes her back. And now, near Taos, they meet up with Mabel Dodge, a wealthy collector of art and husbands, who has an estate there and a kind of art colony, and has been trying to get O'Keefe there for years. Dodge gives O'Keefe some studio space, but... Mostly, she's just enjoying space. Space from Stieglitz. Space from the big city. Space from all the expectations of what life is supposed to look like in 1929 in America. And there is plenty of space. After two months in Taos, O'Keefe writes to Stieglitz, There is much life in me, When it was always checked and moving toward you, I realized it would die if it could not move toward something. I chose coming away because, here at least, I feel good. And it makes me feel I am growing very tall and straight inside and very still. Maybe you will not love me for it, but for me, it seems the best thing I can do for you. O'Keefe ends with, I hope this letter carries no hurt to you. It is the last thing I want to do in the world. Stieglitz simply writes to her, I am broken. O'Keefe stays for five months in New Mexico in 1929. And when she gets back, she makes a kind of deal with Stieglitz. I'll stay with you part of every year. I'll feed you. I'll feed your friends. I'll show up to your parties. I'll I'll even look the other way at your other women. You be you. But then... I'm gone the rest of the year. And he says, okay. She gets a place at the ghost ranch, right? 
outside of Santa Fe. And she paints. She paints a lot in what she calls the Black Place. Like Black Place One, a picture now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. These hills, she says, are like a mile of elephants. And she's not the only one. Ansel Adams and Marsden Hartley and Willa Cather and Aldous Huxley are all coming around to this place. A place where Stieglitz, the creature of the steel canyons, roaming around Greenwich Village in his black cape, would never follow. And she knows it. But every year, when she brings back the work she's made back to New York, Stieglitz sells it. And he sells an image of her as this lonely savant of the desert who has run away from home, which is how she must appear to him. And it works, right? O'Keefe becomes famous, partly because of this image Stieglitz has created of her, but also because in New Mexico, O'Keefe has found a key to American modernism, a form as clean and spare as the desert. In New York, you can hardly see the forest, as it were, or the trees. In New Mexico, you can see everything for miles. When Stieglitz dies in 1946, O'Keefe pays a young woman who could care less about photography to destroy all of his negatives. And she moves permanently to New Mexico. She buys another place, this ruined hacienda, right? with a little courtyard and a door in the wall that she paints dozens of times. And her life itself becomes kind of her best art project. She wears only black or white. She puts only the things she likes in her house and takes everything else away. And she does the same thing, more or less, with the people in her life. She likes the people she likes. She goes riding in Yosemite with Ansel Adams. She goes camping with the photographer Todd Webb. She goes to Peru and Japan. In a letter to Webb, she writes, I am at the ranch house and am very pleased to be here just with the desert. And yet, she adds, You are not here enough. But to the rest of the world, without Stieglitz selling her anymore, O'Keefe becomes the ghost of Ghost Ranch. By the late 1950s, she's appearing in a Newsweek story called Where Are They Now? To many people, an older woman living without a man in the desert with a bunch of animal skulls seems... Strange. Maybe even suspicious.
She lives 25 miles north of the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory. She's the only person in town, an informant tells the FBI, who voted for Henry Wallace, the progressive candidate for president in 1948. Quote, her political philosophy doesn't sound entirely American, the informant says. So, in 1953, the FBI comes out to spy on her. The G-men watch her house. They watch her mail. And what they find is that she's sending letters to people all over the world. And a Chinese or Filipino man is watching her house while she's gone. And she, quote, frequently entertains guests of foreign extraction in her home. I don't like it. But in less than a year, they close the file. O'Keefe, maybe unusual in Eisenhower America, but she's neither dangerous nor a loner. In 1966, Life magazine sends a photographer out to the ghost ranch to find her. The photographer spends three days with O'Keefe, walking, talking, laughing. She had a reputation of being a hermit, the photographer would later say, but she couldn't have been more friendly. Which isn't exactly what the magazine was hoping for. So, the story sits on the shelf for two years. Until, in 1968, O'Keefe suddenly seems downright countercultural. Cities are rioting, right? Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. will be dead by the end of the year. And here's O'Keefe, all in black, her hair in a tight white bun, quote, walking silently through the sage, as the author puts it, a stick in her hand to ward off snakes. Life puts her on the cover, and people read about her back-to-the-land lifestyle, how she grows her own vegetables, why she collects animal skulls. Quote, the bones seem to cut sharply to the center of something, that is keenly alive on the desert. Even though it is vast and empty and untouchable, and knows no kindness with all its beauty. People read this and start looking at maps of New Mexico. The pilgrims come to see her any way they can, pretending to be workmen tagging along with someone who is invited, or just knocking on the door. Which must be incredibly annoying, right? There, you've seen me, she tells someone who yells at her to let him in. Now go away! After a major retrospective in 1970 at the Whitney Museum of Modern Art, it only gets worse. She's 85, her eyesight is failing, 
She paints her last picture unassisted in 1972. She still takes calls from strangers, still invites them over, but she says less and less. And what she says is more and more unfiltered. When Joni Mitchell makes the pilgrimage to see her, O'Keefe tells her she should quit smoking. And when Mitchell shows her a painting she made, O'Keefe snaps, Is this a bowl of fruit? As Mitchell would later say, she could really be a bitch. Okay, let's step back for a minute. There's this study a few years ago where researchers found that older people are more likely to say they've tried to lose weight than younger people, right? And the researchers think, well, maybe it's because when you're older, you might have more weight to lose. Your metabolism slows down. You tend to get heavier. Or you're older, you've lived longer, you've simply had more time to try losing weight. Makes sense. But then the researchers start thinking, Maybe there's another explanation. Maybe, as we get older, we just become more honest. We're not working, mostly. We're not dating, mostly. We don't have to impress anyone anymore. We don't have to pretend to care when we really don't. Georgia O'Keeffe has always been a little like this, even when she wasn't old. Why, of course I feel free, she wrote from Texas back in her 20s. It never occurred to me to feel any other way. Now that she is old, well. In 1983, O'Keefe returns to New York for the opening of a major Stieglitz show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She's 96 now and has a handyman living with her. This guy named Juan Hamilton, who's also a travel companion and kind of bouncer, policing the pilgrims who still come to see her. And when they're in New York, they sit for an interview with Andy Warhol, of all people. O'Keefe tells him, Your glasses stand right out. And Warhol tells Hamilton, You should take Georgia around the city. See New York. And O'Keefe says, I lived here. But Warhol keeps going. Tells her she should check out the new Philip Johnson building. And O'Keefe says, Eh, He wasn't really a talent. Finally, Hamilton jumps in to say, You shouldn't criticize Philip Johnson. He said you were the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, she says, I didn't think what he created was the most beautiful woman in the world. And it goes on like this for a long time. Until 
Warhol and Hamilton are basically having their own conversation. And Hamilton says, Georgia is one of the few people that I have known that does what she wants to do. And she doesn't think about how it affects other people or doesn't affect other people. And suddenly, O'Keefe chimes in to say, I have lived up there at the end of the world by myself a long time. You walk around with your thing out in the field and nobody cares. It's nice. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. You can listen to The Object on Audible now and on Amazon Music. And you can ask for it on your smart speaker. Wherever you listen, subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.